I'd like to introduce you quickly because the audience for Nurturing Healthy Faces are parents who want to understand how can we help our little ones develop a healthier, more beautiful face, one that facilitates functional breathing and quality sleep, setting them on the pathway for a longer, happier and healthier life. Uh, You're our guest today because you are an international breathing and sleep expert who tours the world speaking on this important topic. And you've been researching breathing and sleep now for over 20 years, published multiple best-selling books, and your TED Talk on nasal breathing has garnered over 1 million views online. So you could start with why you got into this space, this field of research over 20 years ago, and why is it still largely misunderstood in healthcare? Anybody who gets into breathing, you don't choose this as a typical career path unless you have your own issues associated with breathing. It might be a little bit different now. Back 21 years ago, very few people were in the space of teaching nose breathing. Um, anything with regards to breathing, it was typically what people taught was in yoga and nothing in terms of functional breathing, well, at least very little. So, yeah, so I came into it because of my own issues. I knew it worked because it had helped me so much. And even though the information wasn't out there, and I remember even back at the day, I knew it was working on me. My nose was feeling quite a bit different to breathe through. My asthma was really, really improving tremendously, like after 21 years of constantly having issues with asthma. And it improved within one week significantly. You know, when something is so quick and then I was talking with medical doctors and medical doctors would be saying, well, that couldn't be happening because the theory is this, that and the other. And I'm just thinking to myself, well, even though your theory is saying it's not working, I know it is. And I needed that because otherwise there would have been so much resistance. And there was, you know, because and I still think to this day, we have to ask the question to answer your second point. You know, why is there so much resistance? Like, you know, all of the information in terms of the application of nose breathing, the importance of it in sleep and in dental. And this has been debated in the dental industry for over 100 years and nothing has moved on. You know, so, of course, there's a few things that are people who are scientifically thinking. Sometimes logical and common sense goes out the window. And the reason being is because maybe doctors and people who are, you know, if you've trained for eight years in in medical school, science and their training has become their DNA. It's in their blood. And they, they are not able then to deviate anything outside of that field because this is the way they are trained and breathing is not included in their training so therefore breathing is absolutely no relevance whether the individual i've seen medical professors stand up and say it didn't make any difference if you breathe through your mouth or through your nose now imagine saying a statement like that um so yes it's interesting katrina i don't have a full answer i there's probably another thing that's that's uh it's difficult to make money from teaching breathing you know, you can make a, you can make some income. You can, you can make a living out of it. You're, you're not going to make the, the promise of profit that's, um, that's often seen. You know, if you look at the likes of the big pharma companies, um, whereby it's on a totally different scale. So it doesn't get the research. It's very difficult to fund research when you're not getting the money, and it's almost as if it's not a sexy topic. You know, if you're a medical doctor and you want to get published, and there's a, there's a pressure on you to be published. Um, you know, it's it's and maybe a little bit of kind of you're not going to do a study on breathing, breathing. What on earth? Why would you do a 
why would you waste all of your your intelligence you know studying something as simple as breathing you need to be looking into stem cell research you need to be looking into this highfalutin area that will draw you such beautiful attention and castigate you out you kind of understand what i'm talking about yeah so breathing is this low level thing that's down there yeah it's uh it doesn't come in the list that's unfortunate it's, yeah it's it goes on silently this epidemic of dysfunctional breathing as you say it's not particularly sexy and it kind of happens subconsciously we don't even pay attention to it uh when we now draw the connection between nasal breathing and aesthetics uh, it's gaining a little bit more interest from probably a younger demographic, whereas previously we thought, oh, obstructive sleep apnea, that's an old man's problem. But now the science is telling us loud and clear that even children have sleep disordered breathing and dysfunctional breathing. Uh, this can be tied to anatomically a, a small face the maxilla not opening up, which you would know about. But your research also tells us that it's not just craniofacially uh, an anatomical problem that uh, impedes one's ability to nasal breathe and live a, a healthy life, but there's some other pathways to developing disordered breathing early in life. Can you share how does this arise in a child's life early on? Why is this happening? Mm. I had sleep disorder breathing as a kid. I left school initially at 14 years of age. You know, we're, we're sending children to school and we're demanding. These kids have no choice in the matter. They are demanded. It's demanded of them that they will sit down in the classroom environment between 9 o'clock and 2 p.m. or 9 o'clock and 3 p.m. in the day and pay attention to what their teacher is saying and be able to produce results in exams. Otherwise, they're, they're labeled as stupid or that they're not going to reach their full potential but nobody is looking at how are these kids sleeping i didn't have hyperactivity disorder but i had attention deficit and sometimes that's an important distinction to make when we think of the words ADD or adhd and um, we're often think about the hyperactive child but what about the kid who's sitting there with an inability to concentrate because they don't have the energy levels or they are daydreaming stuck in their head now what are the factors there that child is not going to succeed academically. If the child does succeed academically, they have to put in a lot of work. I did go back one year later. I studied 10, 12 hours per day. I got my results. I got into university. I got my degree. I got everything. It could have been a lot easier. And a lot of kids mm. wouldn't have put themselves through that. That's a problem, you know. So education is teaching us how to think and concentration is is a prerequisite to be able to get through education, but education does not teach mm. us how to concentrate. So the tools that we need to concentrate, sleep is a vital component of that and quality sleep. Let's look at the stats. One to 5% of children have sleep disorder breathing. 10 to 15% of children are snoring. Sleep disorder breathing in a child, if I talk about obstructive sleep apnea, one event is if the child stops breathing for two breaths or more or that's one apnea, or a hypopnea is when they have a reduction in the flow of their breathing in around 50% or more to cause their blood oxygen saturation to drop by three or 4%. Now, if the child has one of those events per hour, it's clinically significant. Those children don't get the same slow wave sleep. They don't get the same deep sleep because when they have an interruption to their breathing during sleep, it causes their sleep to be disrupted. They have sleep fragmentation. 
And the problem with that is that the brain doesn't develop the way it should do. So we should be also asking the question, are these kids' brains damaged for good, for life, owing to a sleep disorder that has been overlooked? Um, snoring, no child should mm. snore. It's, you know, snoring implies that there's resistance to breathing. You know, what is snoring? Snoring is a noise created from turbulent airflow. So then we have to ask, well, what's causing turbulent airflow? A narrow airway is one, but also if the child is breathing a little bit faster and harder, that too will generate turbulent airflow. Mm. So it's not just the anatomy of the airway, but it's also the child's breathing pattern. And if the resistance to breathing during snoring is sufficient, that blood oxygen saturation drops, well, then that's upper airway resistance syndrome or a hypopnea, and that's a problem. So it's not just what are the factors then that are causing and contributing to sleep disorder? Well, the, the one that typically stands out the most is enlarged adenoids and enlarged tonsils. So enlarged adenoids are the lymphatic tissue at the back of the nose, which has, has swollen, it's inflamed. And that impedes airflow, but it's not just about the adenoids. If the child has enlarged adenoids combined with a maxilla, the top jaw that's set back, then their airway is compromised. The child can't breathe through their nose because they don't feel comfortable breathing through their nose. Hence, they open their mouth. And of course, they take cold, dry, unfiltered air directly into their lungs, which is only going to aggravate everything. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the pharyngeal resistance there's the maxilla being too narrow because developmentally children can struggle to grow their bones to full potential narrowing the nasal cavity uh so you you recognizing that children anatomically are having a few difficulties in being able to exclusively nasal breathe but there's some other ways that um i guess asthma or allergies our indoor lifestyle is is disrupting um the nasal passage by making it congested or inflamed and forcing children into mouth breathing, something that, as you say, greatly impacts their ability to learn far more than um, study habits and these other things we tend to focus on as parents, we need to come back and think, how are these children's brains developing when they don't sleep well and they don't get enough oxygen to their brain day in, day out? I mean, I'll let you... Um, go straight into this because this is what your bread and butter is. But I'm just fascinated by the study when they sat uh, two groups of individuals down and they said, this group will nasal breathe while they do a cognitive task and will mouth tape them to make sure. And this group will peg their nose so they oral breathe and do the cognitive tasks. And the oral breathers had 10 of 15 brain regions light up on the MRI scan and the nasal breathers had 15 regions. And that was instantaneous. That was an instant effect of route of breathing impacting cognition and parents and individuals just don't recognize what's happening here and here is dictating how you operate in the world it's amazing that this is still not common knowledge how do you diagnose a mouth breathing child because you know there's no specific criteria for scientific healthcare professionals and they want science they want measurement criteria you know, how do you know a nose breathing child from a mouth breathing child? Is it when the child is breathing through an open mouth for 10% of the time or 15 or 20% or 30%, 40, 50%? Nobody knows. And not just the frequency of mouth breathing. The other thing is, how long does the child have to have the mouth open before that's considered to be one event? So you have the number of times that the mouth is open and the child is breathing through it. And we also need to be thinking about how long. Well, 
The answer to that is common sense. That's what I would say. You know, we can't quantify that. You know, there are questions that can't be really answered so easily. And this has held this back, you know, because the dental industry might say, well, at what age then is it the point? Like if the child gets a stuffy nose at two, two, at two years of age, is that going to affect craniofacial growth? Or is it when the child is a, a stuffy nose at 10 years of age? Um, of course, we know the critical growth, growth spurts in children are really early on. And any parent will know that, you know, a young child, two-year-old, three-year-old, you buy, you go down to the shop, you buy a set of clothes for the kid. And the next thing is a month later, you're running down to the shop again because the child has outgrown their clothes. Well, it's not just the body, but of course, it's including the faces growing during that time. And I think the stat is that 60% of the growth of the face is achieved by about four years of age and 90% of the growth of the face is achieved by about nine or 12 years of age. So it happens pretty quickly early on. Like there's so many things. And then you could say, well, the child was born with this narrow facial structure and high palate and this in turn, then there wasn't enough room for the tongue and the roof of the mouth. The child was dropping the tongue because of their high palate. The nasal airway was infringed. The child was feeling uncomfortable breathing through the nose, which caused mouth breathing. Or was it that the child had a stuffy nose, a combination of genetics and the environment. Yes, living in houses that are underventilated, for example, and dust mites, animal dander, things like that that contribute to nasal congestion. Is that what's causing mm. the mouth to open? And is it the open mouth with low tongue resting posture, which is causing craniofacial growth? In other words, is it the chicken or is it the egg? Who knows? However, mm. it should be recognized and healthcare professionals are in a position to do something about it. So irrespective, you know, there are some answers we don't know, but de dentists who understand airway, because not all dentists do, you know, it's not just mm. simply as looking into a child's mouth and a, a dentist should be educated to spot the risk signs, both in children and in adults of the anatomical features that are consistent with contributing to poor sleep. And those anatomical features are high palate, a jaws that are set back, scalloping of the tongue, you know, it's smaller mouth, overcrowding of teeth. And many children have overcrowding of teeth. Many children have crooked teeth. If a child needs braces, you know, why is that? Is it because the jaws are too small? Is it because the teeth are too big? Well, if the jaws are too small, there's not enough room for the tongue. The tongue is not able to rest in the roof of the mouth. And as a result, then the tongue is going to encroach the airway. And now the child to get air into their lungs is pushing your head forward. And now you have this imbalance. So a lot of questions, not so many answers, common sense. I feel emotional, um, Patrick. It's, a, it's hard to like to fathom how many children out there. It's common now to have crooked teeth. They go to the dentist in childhood. They're told they need either tooth extractions and braces for a retainer. And they've thought, oh, I had a genetic reason for the crooked teeth. And they're not seeing that this is developmental, that the face was small. And so if you're going to take a small face and then take extra teeth out and straighten those teeth, that airway, upper airway remains small. Now the oral cavity is small and that tongue is too big for the oral cavity. So you've set that child on a pathway of future sleep apnea if they didn't already have that. And um, you've, just you've just ignored like potential breathing and sleeping problems. Uh, they, it's potentially quite damaging if you do braces too early in life when the face still wants to grow and develop. Um, what I would say to parents is we need to be looking at how can we grow the face 
because any aesthetic benefits to growing our jaws, which are not just like a dental thing, the jaws are two thirds of the face. Jaws are essentially what make up our face. So we want these to be full size. So all of the teeth, including wisdom teeth, have space like they used to for our ancestors. And when the face looks big and broad and beautiful, big airways, you're going to have better quality sleep. So, I mean, this is controversial making a link here, but we're seeing skyrocketing increases in ADHD diagnosis on the spectrum autistic spectrumy disorders. And these things are not genetically tested in children. I'm not denying that there's not a genetic aspect in some cases, but the way that practitioners diagnose children is they look at behaviors and they say, this looks like attention deficit, or this looks like on the spectrum. But those symptoms look very much like sleep disordered breathing symptoms. If you, if you looked at a child and said they are on the spectrum because they're not making eye contact, they are doing repetitive behaviors, they're having problems regulating their mood and being flexible. You know, they kind of get stuck in just getting through the day and doing these instinctual things, repetitive patterns. That looks like an adult who's really fatigued. If you had a really, really tiresome night and day, the next day, would you avoid looking into someone's eyes and being really social? Or would you probably withdraw a bit and just try to get through on a more survival mechanism rather than flourishing and using your executive function to learn new information and, and be your best self? So sleep is really impeding how our brain can operate. And we may be looking at child, children who can't concentrate because they're sleep deprived and their brains are so immature and undeveloped. And we say that child is disruptive. Their, their emotions are irritable. They don't concentrate. That's ADHD. We'll give them some drugs like Ritalin. Well, now you've placated a child who could have a sleep disorder and trouble oxygenating their brain and body with breathing. And they'll lead a life very different to their potential, believing genetically there's something flawed about them and, oh, I'm unattractive, I'm not coordinated, I don't excel at school. These could be developmental problems that we can fix and not just diagnose as a disorder that's there for life. It's, I mean, I'd love to know your thoughts on this because we're not genetically testing children when we label them with these disorders that have the same symptomology as disordered breathing. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm, you know, it. Karen Bonnock's pivotal paper, and the only reason that I would say that is because she conducted that study um, in Stratford-upon-Avon. It was published in 2012 in the journal Pediatrics, which is a very high-ranking impact journal. And uh, she looked at 11,049 children. She looked at them from age six months to 57 months. She looked at whether they have behavioral sleep problems or sleep disorder breathing, of which she characterized the hallmark symptoms as mouth breathing snoring and apnea which is stopping breathing and she concluded there are three million children in the united states well they're aged between six and 21 years of age who are receiving special education for conditions associated to their sleep disorder breathing and she included autism there so she did include add adhd and autistic spectrum now i'm not going to say i don't know enough about the field of course to say that you know is there autism caused by sleep disorder breathing but in the kids that i had worked with with autism all of them had poor sleep 
you know so it's yes again this is something that needs to be really investigated and i would say as any parent if there was a parent with a child with autism how does your child sleep how does your child breathe and for parents Mm. this this is really information that parents need to know the the it has been debated in the dental industry for so long now there's another thing coming down the track since in terms of a lot of the orthodontics now you'll start see that people will be doing home-based treatment that they're doing scans of their mouths they're sending them off and it's male order you know male order orthodontics and now you have to wonder what impact may that have because again a child or an adult with poor compromised airway is that going to be picked up on so we do really need for that face-to-face intervention with the dental industry because the dentist is the gateway they're, they are the gatekeeper of the airway and they can spot for all these signs. And we go to our dentist frequently as an adult male of 50 years of age. You know, I am the high risk category there. I have the, the maxilla that's set back. I have the mandible that's set back, you know, the double chin, which is characteristic when your jaws are set back, because if your jaws are far forward enough on the face, you don't have the double chin. So, you know, a double chin is a, it's not just an aesthetic, aesthetic problem, but a double chin is telling you that your jaws, your jaws are a problem and your airway as a result then can be a problem. You know, there's so much like it's all complex, but it's simple at the same time. We mm. do need children to be breathing in and out through their nose. We do need healthcare professionals to assess and screen for the risk factors involved. The anatomy of the mouth, whether the child is tongue tied, all of these things can be done early on in life. And on the basis of that screening, then that child could be directed to do an intervention to help develop forward growth of the jaws. Mm. Like I met you at Dr. John Mew's conference there in London, brought back two months ago or three months ago. And, you know, it's while I think Dr. John Mew has made an absolute tremendous contribution to dental health. And Mike is in is, of course, following in his footsteps. Um, you know, it's, it's been, I often feel that they've been putting out the information and they're in essence, what they are talking about is breathing in and out through your nose. And John will say this, the orthotropic premise is correct tongue resting posture in the roof of the mouth for six, maybe eight hours per day. And it's the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth that is helping to develop the jaws, you know, Mm. but of course he gets criticism for saying that. It's written in our faces, but it's like this, Katrina, how many times have we went into a restaurant or went into a shop and you see a kid, maybe 16 or 17 or 18 years of age, could be a male or female, and they could have had the potential to have a beautiful facial structure, but because of the mouth hanging open, you can see the characteristics. And I wrote this, like I went over to Dr. John Mew's clinic over and back, over and back in 2009, and I wrote a book in 2010 called Buteco meets Dr. Mew, because I wanted to bring his work together with my work. And I sat there, I seen the kids coming in with their open mouth posture. I seen the work that they were doing. And, you know, like functional orthodontics, it's a tremendous approach in terms of that recognition that the dentist is in a position to develop the forward growth of the jaws, because the saying from you would be that straight teeth don't make a good looking face but a good looking face will create straight teeth in other words what you had talked about 
when the face develops the way it should develop, the teeth are straight. But it comes mm. back to, you know, um, overcrowding and how common is it? One of your previous, like when we're thinking about children with sleep apnea, of course, the gold standard of treatment is to remove the adenoids and tonsils. Now, this is a practice that's been carried out since the 1970s. And I put my own daughter through it, unfortunately. Um, but the efficacy of it wasn't wasn't investigated up until about 2010. And you'll find that by a paper by Batter Chargy that's published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. And in the in the opening paragraph, they talk about the efficacy of adenoidectomy and tonsillectomy in the treatment of obstructive sleep apnea in children is unknown. And this is 2010. You're just reading this and you're saying, oh my God, like what's going on here? How could this procedure be carried out in children without even knowing how effective it was? So anyway, they looked at data from 578 kids and these children did have a fairly high, I think 50% of these kids were obese. Um, their AHI, I think, was 18 events per hour, meaning that they have severe sleep apnea for a child. And post-tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, their AHI, which is a measurement, of course, you know, sleep apnea severity, came down from 18 events per hour down to 4.1. Okay, significant drop. However, if a child is more than one event per hour, it is still clinically significant. So those children were still having mild, bordering on moderate sleep apnea, post-adenoidectomy and tonsillectomy. Only 27% of the children had their sleep disorder breathing completely cured. 73% of these children continue to have sleep disorders post-adenoidectomy and tonsillectomy. Okay, that's the gold standard of treatment. And following that, now that's one aspect of it. Another consideration, a study by Guimano, he looked at the AHI of children three years after adenoidectomy and tonsillectomy. And 68% of these kids have a worsening in their sleep if mouth breathing continues. So that's why then he started talking about the importance of restoring nasal breathing as being the only valid, in quote, the only valid and complete correction of pediatric sleep disorder breathing, to breathe in and out through the nose, not mm. just during sleep, but also during wakefulness. Now, of course, we know all that, but this stuff is buried in PubMed. And that's where we need to get mm. it out into the hands of the parents, because I think ultimately all parents, you know, as a parent, we want to ensure that our children succeed academically. We realize the importance of a good education, even just that as being a reason and um, that should be sufficient. And we also know that children who are sleepy with sleep disorder breathing, they have 10 times the risk of learning difficulties. Now, a child then who goes through school, who doesn't get the grades that they should have got due to a sleep issue that wasn't detected and, and treated, now, this child is going to have self-esteem issues because their school system has told them that they are not intelligent because they were flunking exams. Mm. They weren't able to keep up their peers. So now you have a child that's mm. leaving 12 to 14 years of education with a, with a self-esteem and they probably may not go on to university because they feel that they don't have the academic ability to do that. And these kids mm. will be affected all their life. You know, so I don't know. I like... I've been talking about this sometimes and sometimes you feel that you're blue in the face talking about it. You feel that there's not so many people that are actually picking up on it. I think it's changing. Mm. James Nestor's book, um, which talks about the same subject, has really shed light on it. Um, and his book has sold two million copies. You know, we've all made our contributions to it. Um, and as lay people looking in, because I'm not a dentist, 
I'm not an orthodontist. I'm not a medical profession. I simply teach breathing exercises. So as a lay person looking on, it just how on earth has this been overlooked by the scientific community? Because these are scientists. These are highly intelligent people. These are the people that score the top academically. But yet they have overlooked a simple thing, such as the importance of correcting resting posture, craniofacial growth, breathing in the neck through the nose, and the, the impact on that, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, how are we going to speed this up? I think it's through recognition. I think it's through the videos that we are doing here. And the other thing that I would say is for parents, just observe your child, especially if they are distracted. You know, does the child have the mouth hanging open? When the child wakes up in the morning, mm. what is their bedclothes like? Are the bedclothes trashed? I used to see it with my own child when she was having a cold, a head cold. Then I would see that she would stop breathing. And as I said at the start, like if a child stops breathing for two breaths per more, it's an apnea. But when she came out of that and she resumed breathing, she would change position in the bed. So it's almost as if every time the child has an apnea, well, at least when I was observing my own child, when she came out of it, she would change position. And that then can result in the bedclothes being all over the place. Um, children who are wetting the bed is associated with sleep disorders. We spoke earlier on that, you know, we shouldn't hear any child snoring um, because snoring mm. is, is implying that there's resistance to breathing. So then we might ask, well, mm. what are the factors then if it's not just the adenoids and tonsils? And it's not because if it was solely the adenoids and the tonsils which were causing the anatomical problems or sleep disorder breathing, well, then removal of the, ad- the enlarged adenoids and tonsils would solve the problem. It doesn't. It only solved the problem in 27%. Mm. Okay, so what are the other factors? I would have to say that craniofacial development has to play a role. So if the jaws are set back, there's very little space then that, you know, when you think of the hard palate and you think of the soft palate, if the maxilla is set back, the soft palate is nearly meeting the back of the throat. And it doesn't take much for this soft palate to fall back into the throat and that can stop the airway. Or if the lower jaw, well, if the if the top jaw is set back, the lower jaw is set back. And if the lower jaw is set mm. back, then, of course, the epiglottis can fall against the throat. You can have collapse of the throat itself. The tongue can fall into the throat. So these are the sites at which the airway can collapse during sleep. There's four sites typical. If the child has the mouth open, the tongue is dressing in the roof of the mouth. And also if the mouth is open, the mandible tends to be a little further back. So we have to think about open mouth resting posture, craniofacial development, and inflammation as being another factor. The inflammation one is interesting. And if you look at the studies of rhinitis and cognitive function, so you talked about breathing in and out through the nose when individuals were taped, it improves memory and attention. But we also know that people with a stuffy nose tend to have reduced cognition. And cognition is a very important trait in the human being. It's our ability to, to reason, to make decisions, to plan, to organize all of the things as human beings that we take part we that we take part of we take it for granted this is life you know this is human being we we are cognitive beings we need to be able to do all of these things to function cognitively but if you have a stuffy nose you have reduced cognitive function why is that Mm -hmm. 
It's not just that the stuff he knows is causing my breathing, but the stuff he knows implies that there is inflammation. And if there's an inflammatory response in the individual, then their sleep isn't interrupted. So people with inflammation could be asthma, could be a stuffy nose. Adults say, for example, with rheumatoid arthritis or other conditions that are associated with inflammation, their sleep is also impacted.